Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. We made it to another Friday, and you know the drill. It's time for the Weekly News Recap. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in. Here to help us make sense of the week's news is Monica Ng, Chicago reporter for Axios, WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney, and for the first time on the weekly news recap, Chicago Sun-Times reporter Michael Loria. Now, there have been a lot of delays in the corruption trial of former alderman Ed Burke, including multiple attorneys coming down with COVID-19. Now, before we get into the details, I started off by asking Dave to explain the significance of this trial. Well, I mean, Alderman Burke served in office for 54 years, and, and you know, that you do the math, and that means he joined the city council in the late 1960s before many of our listeners were even born. And so he, he developed this big legacy in the city council. And as far as, like, the, the, the size of this trial and the scope of it and the importance of it in terms of, of corruption cases in Illinois, it's one of the big ones. I mean, we, we all think of George Ryan and, and Ron Blagojevich in sort of recent history. This one is right up there. Yeah. Well, this week, prosecutors began playing secretly recorded audio conversations uh, between Burke and former alderman-turned-government mole, Danny Solis. Uh, I want to first of all play a snippet here of former Alderman Ed Burke. Well, while you're at it, recommend uh, the good firm of Crafter and Burke to do the tax work. <laughs> all right. I, I certainly will. And uh, we can certainly uh, talk about a marketing uh, arrangement for you. A marketing arrangement for, for Alderman Solis. Dave, decode that for us. Well, first off, I mean, these, these recordings that we're playing here, they're in all the corruption cases, these recordings are so pivotal, and in this case, they're just there's a there's an avalanche of them. I think I counted them up yesterday, and there were dozens of them that got, really got dropped. And what what I think is kind of funny about a lot of these tapes, you hear the laughter of these people who are who are talking about these alleged schemes, and in, you know, and speaking so casually, play, so casually, and then the laughter. It's like wow, that that laughter does not not sound great. But but a marketing arrangement, you know, you know that's that's a a very kind of dressed up way of of you know, calling something a kickback. Mm. And that's, you know, that's what the feds are, are, are alleging here. Now, of course, uh, the, the, the Burke team is saying that there's nothing illegal here, no money changed hands. But, but I do think that, you know, this is, this is a situation that arose out of, you know, several developers that had business pending before the city council. And as chairman of the finance committee, Alderman Burke had more sway than just about any alderman in, in, in the city council. And so these developers needed backing from, from Ed Burke. And so at the same time, yeah. they were asking, uh, Burke was saying, hey, you know, I'll, I'll help you out here. But uh, consider the good firm of Clafter and Burke. They did property tax appeals. All these developers needed to have tax work done. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get business at the same time he was taking up the city business. Well, I mean, that piece of tape made you chuckle too, Monica. What do you think jurors may have taken away from that exchange? Is think, it illegal or just business as usual? Well, I mean, that's that's the big question, isn't it? Um, you know, what at what point is it just sort of a subtle, you know, nudge in the ribs suggestion? And what point is it a quid pro quo? And I think that's what the prosecutors are going to have to be driving home here. Yeah. Well, jurors also heard Burke make some anti-Semitic comments in an exchange where he was, again, talking about securing business for his law firm. So let's play those remarks now. This is about a 10-second clip here. 
You know as well as I do. <laughs> Jews are Jews. And they'll deal with Jews to the exclusion of everybody else. Unless, unless there's a reason for them to use a Christian. So, Dave, the 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 defense actually tried to prevent the jurors from from hearing this. Is that right? Well, yeah, and I mean, with good reason, because you know, I, it's you know, we don't know the the. We, we don't know a lot of the details about the makeup of the jury, whether they are Jewish members or not. But th- these are comments that clearly could offend, uh, you, you know, anyone of, 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 uh, of who is a Jew. And, and, and or it, anyone. It, well, that's right. Anyone. Right. Anyone. And, and so you have this situation where they, the defense recognized that those are damaging comments and, and uh, the, the way that Burke said them so casually. Uh, you know, and, and he did it in a city hall office when he thought no one else but Danny Solis was listening. Mm-hmm. That's the key thing there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you think those comments went over with jurors, Monica and Michael? Well, I mean, I guess it's not illegal or that he's not being tried for being anti-Semitic, but it sure doesn't make him look good. It makes him mm-hmm. look like I'm going to do whatever I can to get business from whoever I need to get business from. That's mm-hmm. what it looks right. like. Yeah, have you been following this circus at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I was going to say that um, it's really revealing to hear the recording because I've been I've been reading my colleague John Seidel's reporting on this, and it's one thing to read that comment as it's written; it's another thing to hear the tone in which it's said. Um, yeah, I, I can't really imagine that. Yeah. Um, Helping him out. Ingratiating yeah. him to a lot of people. Right. Michael, Michael, I'm glad you gave a plug to, to John Seidel. He and Mariah Wolfel with WBZ yeah. have been doing terrific coverage. Definitely. Right. I haven't even been able to see Mariah in, in, yeah. in weeks because of this uh, this trial. She's doing busy such lady. great work. Busy, busy lady. What else did jurors hear this week, Dave, that we should know? Well, I mean, there have been you know various alleged schemes here that have been laid out by prosecutors. One of them involved... Burke's interactions with the the owner of a, a number of Burger King franchises, a situation where, you know, a Burger King owner was in his ward was wanting to, you know, expand and needed city permits. And of course, it was the same kind of tactic where, where Burke was allegedly trying to, uh, you know, drum up business for his law firm from this person at the same time that the company had needed business at City Hall. There was also uh, a, a whole narrative here that prosecutors laid out involving Burke's efforts to get a uh, the, the the daughter of, of a former colleague of his in the city council, uh, former older person Terry Gabinski, getting his daughter an internship at the Field Museum, and and somehow this whole thing fell through the cracks at the Field Museum, and and the Field Museum wanted to get a, a an, an increase in its admission prices, but they needed approval from the Park District, and so Burke was was. Uh, you know, talking about how he he wasn't prepared to help them get that because they had dropped the ball on his request to hire this person. And in one of the tapes they played, the former uh, field CEO, field museum CEO, uh, you know, was so apologetic. I mean, he was, you know, in a position where you heard him. And I mean, a person in charge of one of the city's finest cultural institutions having to grovel to this city alderman in the way that he did and mm. apologize was really jarring to hear. But but again, you put yourself in the position of this person, the CEO of the Field Museum. What are you supposed to do? Would any of us have done anything differently than him? You know, it just it, it's an awful thing. Wow. And you just finished up a deep dive, Dave, into how Illinois' history of public corruption impacts voter participation. Uh, this is for WBEZ's Democracy Solutions Project. What did you find there? 
Well, I mean, this was just, again, a deep dive into, you know, we're really in the midst of a remarkable year in terms of these public corruption trials uh, unfolding in the Dirksen Federal Building. In the spring, we had the case of the Comet 4, yes. you know, a big bribery case involved. When you would be on the recap a lot more frequently. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, those those wooden benches in the uh, in the courtrooms really kind of take their toll mm-hmm. after eight weeks. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, we had that trial that involved you know, bribes to uh, former House Speaker Michael Madigan. And then we had the trial of, of Madigan's uh, former chief of staff for lying to the FBI. He was convicted. We had the son-in-law of Joe Barrios, the former Cook County assessor, clout-heavy guy, uh, you know, paying off two legislators, conviction. Now we have this. Next spring we have Madigan. We have all of this activity going on. And so what what the piece did was just sort of look at what the effect is of all this corruption mm-hmm. on, on our democracy in Illinois and on voters. And, you know, polling has shown that voters get really turned off by this stuff. Three out of four people think that corruption in Illinois is widespread. And, and there have been studies that say that when this happens, you know, it really has the effect of dampening uh, voter participation. They're just thinking, oh, same old. Same old. It's like, why does my vote really matter? But what, yeah. you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I went digging in, you know, uh, uh, voter registration numbers and uh, uh, total votes cast going back a dozen election cycles. And, and that didn't, that has not been the case in Illinois. And, and that's, that's an, you know, that little thread of good news is that people still have faith in our democracy and they want to vote and they're not so turned off by this that they've just given up. But at the same time, you know, there also, there's also research out there that shows that, you know, corruption takes a financial toll on people. That uh, there, I ran across this study that, that looked at the, the 10 most corrupt states in America, Illinois being one of them, and that, that the, the researchers found that there is higher government expenditures in these corrupt states. And so basically for, you know, per capita, it's about $1,300 more if you live in a corrupt state like Illinois that you pay in taxes and various things than it would be in in a non-corrupt state so that that you know there's a financial toll to it so it's mm. a, it's kind of a you know it takes its toll but it, it, it's uh you know it's it, it's just one of those sort of historic moments we have going on in the city of chicago where where all of this corruption is just kind of being front and center and, and we're we're really really as we've we heard in those burke tapes having a curtain pulled back Jeez. on the way our government works All right, Michael, the federal government also weighed in on Chicago politics this week. The Department of Housing and Urban Development had some criticism about this practice known as aldermanic prerogative and how it affects affordable housing. Fill us in on that. Yeah, I um, I was I heard you had Rod Wilson on the on the show yesterday to talk about this. And this is basically a practice that goes back to the 1930s of allowing aldermen to veto uh, developments in their ward. this, as you know, Rod pointed out yesterday, has massively contributed to segregation in Chicago. It's why we have a shortage of thousands and thousands of um, hundreds of thousands of uh, rental units. Um, and it's kind of created this situation where, you know, we've had a lot of folks leaving the city. We've had a lot of folks who are living on the street or doubled up. Uh, and as someone who covers, you know, um, the migration issues in the city, it's yeah. also made me think of all the rivals in the in the city. You know, we've had... Um, Around 26,000 folks arrived since August 2022 by bus or by by plane. And, um, you know, many of them have been able to find housing. Um, But as we can see from having over 13,000 folks in shelters right now, many have had difficulty finding housing. And from what I hear from from them and from the folks trying to help them find housing, there's just not uh, enough units that around that they can afford. So what is HUD asking for them to do? I mean, it says that yeah. Chicago's violating the Fair Housing Act. 
Right, right. right. So I, I think it's kind of unclear exactly what they're asking for, but they're asking for the Johnson administration, as I understand it, to just enter into talks to find some sort of resolution to this issue. Yeah. Well, so they're going to find some way to try to force from Washington, force Chicago to make this change? I, I am not sure exactly how that is going to work. <laughs> well, I mean, so Lori Lightfoot, uh, she she campaigned on getting rid of it, and then she really didn't in some ways. And But even, let's say you did get rid of aldermanic prerogative, you know, in officially letting them uh, squash uh, developments, it would not stop the city council from saying, oh, I see my colleague over there, let's say Ronnie Mosley, doesn't want this happening in his ward. I'm going to stand up and say, I'm not going to vote for it either. I mean, because it would just, you know, if they stand together and say that we are going to stay powerful together, then there's nothing you can officially do. Yeah. Right, right. I, uh, I'm reminded a little bit of, um, I'm sure Mayor Johnson would like to get rid of it. I'm reminded of one of those briefings we did where with uh, Christina Passioni-Zayas, and she was mm-hmm. talking about a trip to New York to kind of learn more about how they're doing handling the migrant crisis. And one of the takeaways was that in New York, Mayor Eric Adams doesn't have to ask local council members what mm-hmm. they think about what's happening in their neighborhood. Which is true. Um, she didn't give quite an answer on whether that's something she wanted to bring back to Chicago. But. Of course not. Well, I mean, you can understand, like, from an alderman's perspective that, like, well, they, they would argue that they're the closest person to the ground of what's going on in their ward. That's why this is a yeah. great thing. But just because there's, you know, something has been there forever doesn't mean it has to stay. Just, and, mm-hmm. and it seems like what, what you know, what, what this is, if, I, if I'm reading it properly, and I mean, this is a great story for, by our sometimes colleague Brett Chase, it, it's the federal government throwing down a marker here and saying, you know, look, fix this, because if you don't, you know, if you're if you're in violation of the federal civil civil rights law, that, to my way of reading, is is an invitation that you know the next step is an enforcement action, which means taking the city to court. Now they're not saying that that's the that's what's going to happen here, but it is a logical next step. Yeah. That you know there could be a, a judge someplace that decides ultimately that hey this little piece of of aldermanic privilege is no longer something that can can work. And, that, and that's a big deal. I mean, do you, do you think this is essentially, Dave, uh, maybe a federal indictment of our way of government here in Chicago? Well, it's interesting because I, I, I have not had time this week to, to go back and or at least look at what goes on in other big cities. I don't know how common this is in Los Angeles or New York or Philadelphia. I mean, I have to think that there's some version of it in just about every place there is. But but again, I think it's it's one of those things where there's a, a public need, a public purpose here in in you know in, in providing housing for people who can't afford it. Yeah. And and if that if that's being thwarted and you know effectively the, the policy of the, the federal government is being thwarted, then the federal government's will will step in and do something about it. What do you think are the chances, Michael, that uh, Mayor Johnson might actually end the practice of aldermanic prerogative? Um I think, again, it's something he would probably like to do, I'm sure. But um, he's got 50, 50 folks standing in his way. <laughs> yeah. And he's already having trouble with them. Yeah. I mean, this you know, this kind of reminds me, you go back in a little bit of history here. The state had a comparable thing called the Legislative Scholarship Program. And it was it was a deal where every legislator got to get, you know, hand out free college tuition to whoever they wanted. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, this thing had been around forever, for decades, for, for almost a century. And, and it, what it became was it wasn't, you know, something that everybody could take advantage of. It was something that just only a favored few children of lobbyists, children of political people were getting. And, and there was a similar outcry to that. Well, hey, we've always had this. This is our way of, you know, uh, of, of being close to the, the people we represent. And yet it was it was abused. And, and when you cross that line of something being abused, as there have been examples with with aldermanic privilege, 
a prerogative that, you know, that then, then there's a time to reevaluate. We discussed the corruption trial of former Alderman Ed Burke, but there's more news to get to, like the official start to election season this week. I started off by asking Dave to walk us through the highlights of what will be on the Illinois primary ballot in March. Well, all right. So this week uh, it, it kicked off. Candidates have to gather a certain number of signatures to get on the ballot for March uh, March 19th. And and so we had state, uh, county-wide uh, office, and uh, we had uh, Congress. And, and so folks were, uh, were filing those petitions uh, among our, uh, you know, congressional delegation, six members in the Chicago area, all Democrats wound up drawing primary opponents. Uh, that's uh, Congresswoman Schakowsky, Congressman Kasten, Congressman Foster, Congressman Garcia, Congressman Davis, Congressman Quigley. Uh, there's a chance, I would assume, that some of those challengers get knocked off the ballot because, you know, that's part of the process here. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the county side, we had... Uh, you know, uh, uh, who, people filing to uh, succeed Kim Fox, the Cook County State's attorney. That's a big race to watch. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. The presidential campaign, uh, that won't really get underway in Illinois until early January when candidates want to be on the ballot for March. They have to file their petitions then. Uh, those are the party ones that, you know, if RFK or, you know, an independent, that that, that comes later than that. Mm. But, but you know, we are we are now underway in the very first phases of, of campaign 24. And so get ready. Here get ready to rumble. we go. And as others were filing to be on. On the ballot, former Illinois House Republican leader Jim Durkin made his own announcement this week. What was that about? Well, he, he had uh, he, he had been contemplating running as a Republican for Cook County State's Attorney, and you know you, you have to go back in history of quite a ways since the last time Cook County had a Republican State's Attorney. That was Jack O'Malley back in the 1990s, and and what you know Durkin Durkin left the House. Uh, uh, this past cycle, and and he he kind of fits the mold of the old suburban Republican, not old age, but just you know what we used to see in the suburbs, you mm-hmm. know, a, a kind of a moderate Republican, uh, and and uh, you know there's an argument in the suburbs that that you know a candidate who is. Uh, who favors gun control, as Durkin does, a candidate who, who favors uh, abortion rights, as Durkin does, would stand a chance of running. But he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And the reason for that is that, that Donald Trump, uh, you know, just has has had a, a history in Illinois of tanking badly mm-hmm. and taking the party down with it. And I so see. he's like, you know, I'm not going to do it because it's th- that he, he predicts that will happen again. And a former suburban Republican mayor will be on the March 19th ballot. But as a Democrat, who's this? Uh, it's a candidate. Uh, I, I don't know this person directly. He's a former uh, Elmhurst mayor, Pete uh, D.C. Annie. Okay. Uh, he's a, a, a longtime Republican. He's going to run for DuPage County Recorder. It's a countywide position there. He, he's going to run as a Democrat. And it's it's just, you know, a further piece of evidence about how, uh, you know, DuPage County, which used to be just the bedrock of, of Republican politics in Illinois, and even Elmhurst, like Elmhurst used to be the place where, you know, Lee Daniels was was the former House Speaker before. You know, during a little moment in time when Madigan wasn't, uh, we had uh, Jim Ryan, the former Attorney General, the Congressman Henry Hyde. They all came from from Elmhurst in that general area, and mm-hmm. so no longer is that part of the, the political map that way. And so uh, this is this is political survival for this gentleman. He he thinks the only way to get elected in that county is to to run as a Democrat. And right. so we'll see how that goes. Well, Monica, as you heard Dave say, I mean, DuPage County has traditionally been a Republican stronghold. You think this could reflect how many suburbs across the the country are becoming more democratic? 
Yeah, especially, yeah, suburbs uh, near blue cities. Um, DuPage was a big one that we saw, and everyone's like, what? How could how could we possibly see DuPage go blue or purple? And yet it is happening. Well, yeah. and it's interesting, too. This is all kind of happening around the time, you know, it's about roughly a week after the death of, of Senate, former Senate President Pate Phillip. He was the kind of the lion of, you know, conservative Republican, yeah. you know, kind of right, right-wing ideology in Illinois. A very powerful man in Springfield uh, passed away from, uh, he was from Wooddale. And mm. it's hard to imagine yeah. something like this. Happened. Turning over in his grave. Yeah, this would not happen <laughs> if Pate were still around and still in power. Wow. All right, Michael, uh, let's turn to the migrant situation, which, uh, as we know, you have been covering so closely. Construction's begun on the winterized camp in southwest Brighton Park. Give us the latest on that. Um, Yeah, so construction began earlier this week. Um, Not exactly sure when it's going to wrap up. I know they expect to move folks over there shortly. Um, Shortly. Yes, this is a... Yeah, will it be four days, or they said mid-month, some people, but expeditiously. Exactly. We were, t- we were talking about this beforehand. Um, yeah. One of the things that we're waiting on uh, possibly today, which could make the rest of our day very exciting, yeah. is uh, whether they're going to actually release um, the environmental, the environmental assessment. assessment of the land there. Because uh, we know, again, co- uh, reporting from my colleague Brett Chase, that they found um, heavy metals there, but they haven't really said anything else. They've said they're going to, uh, you know, um, I guess mitigate the land, but they haven't said exactly what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things that's uh, so that remains to be seen as they proceed to construct the. Yeah, so construction began despite protests about right. potential right. environmental contamination at the right. site. Right, exactly. So there's protests from folks who just don't want it in their neighborhood, and then there's protests from folks who are saying, you know, um, what's up with the uh, environment here? Yeah. So when you ask, I mean, when you're out there and at, at these press conferences and such, do reporters ask, like, why is a tent structure the best option for migrants? And what do they say? What well, do officials I mean, say? Well, I, I've heard them say it's it's easy to put up, easy to take down. It really stresses the temporary nature of it. And it's um, and it's not building a whole building. Um, you know, of course, Governor Pritzker has said, yeah, why not use real buildings? But another thing that people keep asking, and there's never been a great answer for it, is why are you building it before the final environmental assessment has come out? Mm-hmm. And we keep I mean, asking that's a and huge asking. question. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a huge question to skim over, yeah. right? Um, do we know what this will look like? I mean, do we have a better sense of what it will look like and how yeah. many people could be housed there, Michael. So I was just looking at the Garter World contract the other night, trying to get a better sense of what it would look like. Um, there's a couple different options in the contract. I tried asking the city what one they're going to go with. Um, I didn't get an answer. I was different. Did the options look very different from each other? Um, one of them seemed a bit more like um, conducive to privacy, kind of like smaller style tents. Um, but Again, they didn't say which one they're going to go with. Um, They'll be sleeping in what bunk beds or? Uh, I believe it's cots. cots. Uh, one of the one of the questions that I'm trying to figure out is like, are these sort of like a a, a sort of barracks situation where you have uh, bed after bed? I was talking with um, a woman who's staying at a north side shelter the other day, and she was telling me about how uh, she was there with her husband. I was talking with her husband, and and their their two children were there, and they were telling me about how they're in the shelter and. They're right next to each other, which is, you know, great. They're right next to their family. But they're also right next to a bunch of strangers that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
with a child. Yeah, exactly. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there there aren't partitions. So one of the big questions about the tent shelter is here is like, are there going to be partitions? What will the partitions be like? Will it be the type of thing where it'll be a, like a essentially a shower curtain where you won't have any real privacy, or will it be a hard partition where mm-hmm. you know you will actually get a sense of your own space? Yeah, I mean, I I I don't anticipate yeah. it'll be a door, right? Yeah, not in a tent structure. So. Right. Uh, Monica, the Tribune reported this week that the uh, original idea for the winterized tent camps came actually not from Mayor Brandon Johnson, but from Governor Pritzker's administration. What's the story there? Yeah, it seems that uh, months before they, you know, the, the Pritzker administration said they'd been exploring all options. So they put out an RFP and that's where the Garda World contract came from that uh, they wanted to look at what are called soft-sided structures as well. And, you know, the governor's people said, look, we wanted to keep our options open. Um, It's not like we went ahead with it. But um, then the Tribune said, well, we found correspondence between you and um, Deputy Chief of Staff Cristina Pasiones-Zayas about this, where you're like, hey, here's how much it would cost. And the city did not respond to that, or sorry, the state did not respond to that. Mm. But, you know, I mean, in the end, it does seem, at least from from what they've said to me, that they wanted to keep their options open. And yeah, J.B. Pritzker had criticized the use of tents over existing structures. Yeah, I mean, wasn't he publicly trying to distance himself from this whole tent encampment conversation? That, that's what it seemed like. And so, you know, I, I, I get the, the reporter's inclination to want to check on that. But I mean, I don't want to say it's a nothing burger, but it's just sort of like, yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So maybe they were keeping their options open. Maybe uh, Pritzker didn't know that they were keeping their options open. Any surprises mm. for you, Dave, that this came from Pritzker? No, I don't think so, because, you know, think about what their reaction with the uh, pandemic was. You know, that they built up, uh, you know, a, a hospital at McCormick Place in the event that we had an enormous flood of people with no place to go. So they have they kind of have experience with with these contingency plans. And, and I think there's also kind of a political component to all of this, too, for Pritzker that, you know, Chicago being the largest city and these busloads of people continuing to come up here unpredictably being dropped off, not knowing where, how many, uh, et cetera. I, I yeah. think that, you know, the Pritzker people look at this and like, you know, with winter coming on, they have been very fearful that this thing, you know, people could be dying in the streets. And and then, then in turn, you know, does that get blamed on, you know, who, who does that get blamed on? You know, the mayor clearly, but does it get blamed on, on the state as well for not doing enough? And, you know, all it takes is, a, you know, are a few images. You think about Katrina, you know, and how, how people floating in the water there just kind of right. were seared into our brains. That kind of thing happening here in the wintertime with these migrants would have similar consequences. Yeah. And, and I think that's why everyone was like, hey, are we going to get any state money for this? And Welch was like, no, we're not going to be voting on <laughs> yeah. that. And then suddenly $160 million came loose exactly. uh, from the state funds from Illinois Department of um, uh, Human Services. And so I think that is, yeah, we don't want to have people dying in the cold. And so people are coming up with money, including the state. While construction of these tent camps is moving forward in Brighton Park over on the west side. Plans to turn the Amundsen Park field house into a migrant shelter have been abandoned, Michael. Why did the city scrap that plan? Right. So since, um, I guess it was last spring or so, or maybe the end of last winter, the city has used several park district facilities to shelter migrants. Mm -hmm. This is from Little Village to to Rogers Park. Amundsen Park on the west side was going to be the latest one. This came out in early October when the city was at a very different place in terms of migrant arrivals. We were getting about nine buses a day. There were about 3,500 people um, camped out at police stations in O'Hare. 
um, obviously something to need to be done, but a lot has been done since then, right? There's been a lot of shelters opened. Um, and now the numbers are, it's about um, around 1,000 people at police stations in O'Hare. That's the lowest it's been since the beginning of, of August. Uh, we're also not receiving as many folks daily, um, just simply because of um, there's not as many people crossing the border right now. But Mayor Johnson's been promising to get migrants out of police stations for several months now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, yep. And they have what they call decompressed eight of them. Right. Why can't they use regular words? We've cleared people out right. of eight of them. Decompressed. <laughs> what do they call it? Decompressed. Decompressing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, another initiative announced uh, by Johnson uh, that I want you to give us the, the details on uh, is a partnership with local churches to help, of, right. of course, shelter and, and serve these migrants as well. What mm-hmm. are the details on that? So this is another interesting thing as well, which um, it doesn't have as much of a reach, perhaps. You know, it's um, only a certain number of churches that are going to be housing migrants. It's going to be about 20 migrants per church. 17 churches, 20 right. migrants. I did the math this morning, 340. Exactly, exactly. And some of them already are having already have folks, so it's going to be even less than that initially. Um, again, it's going to make a big difference, though, for the number of people still in stations. Um, yeah. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this is going to play out down the line when the city starts enforcing its 60-day shelter policy uh, and whether that will not be enforced as much at churches and whether those folks who are actually in churches might end up getting a bit more help down the line. We'll see. I see. And so the, the churches are going to follow that same 60-day time limit? Right. So they are. that's what the city said, and that's what the, um, the pastor who is kind of leading the program said. However, in talking with pastors actually having folks in their churches, they said it really just depends on a case-by-case basis. Um, if, you know, they probably people, get some families out within 60 days. Yeah, some sometimes people get it out. Might be longer. Some people get out real quick. Some people it takes a long time. Yeah. Monica, you think this partnership with churches is, is more of a feel good public relations initiative? I mean, because well, it's not a ton 300 of people. people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a ton of people, but I think it is uh, a real effort to say, you know, we're all going to reach out um, across the city to public private partnerships and we're all going to be in this together. And so I think it was it was good PR for them. But yeah, it's 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 not taking the magnitude of people, and in, and if we continue getting people, um, how much it'll be able to handle is unclear. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to WBEZ's weekly news recap. The Chicago Blackhawks made headlines this week for cutting veteran right winger Corey Perry for what the team called inappropriate conduct. Here's Dave with the details. Well, it's still a big mystery. Um, what we do know is that. You know, they brought this guy on in the summer. He was a, a former Stanley Cup winner, a former uh, NHL MVP, and he was brought on to provide veteran leadership for this this young team. Mm-hmm. And uh, last week, the team had a uh, they were they were headed off to, to Columbus, and you know they're going to play there. And he went he went a day early. Uh, Perry did, and th- there was some sort of inappropriate what the team is calling inappropriate conduct that occurred between him and this uh and this uh, blackhawks employee we don't know if it's a man woman player uh front office person we don't know and and as a as a result of what happened there the team terminated his contract on tuesday but in the interim um you know they, the, the team didn't you know 
put a public face on all of this and, and publicly disclose what was going on until Tuesday. And in the interim, there were really scurrilous things that were floating around on the internet that 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 were were actually very hurtful to people that were were identified. And so, you know, the team arguably mishandled the, uh, the, the the PR aspect of this. But, it, you know, this is the, this is a, a sports franchi- franchise in Chicago that just simply cannot get out from underneath the black cloud. Yeah. Uh, my colleague Tony Arnold and I did reporting, uh, as, as others did, but but early on in, 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 a, in an earlier sexual misconduct uh, scandal that, That's right. that, that involved uh, a number of former players. Bringing uh, their culture coach. into question again. Correct. And it was, it was a, it, you know, that involved a, a team cover-up that the team wound up being fine. The front office was replaced. Uh, it, it was just a mess. And they're coming out of that. And this just does not offer the team a very good look coming out of that. We don't know the details of it, though. We don't we, and And eventually you would suspect they would come out. I mean, you know, you know, there's no signs of litigation or anything that, that are coming out of this yet. But, mm-hmm. but typically that is a way when when these types of things happen, somebody sues somebody else. And, and that's when the details start coming out. But we may have to wait for. Yeah. That. Well, the, yeah, the team said Tuesday in a statement that an internal investigation showed that Perry acted in violation of his NHL standard player contract and club policies, quote, intended to promote professional and safe work environments. That tells me nothing. It tells you nothing. And and Perry, uh, you know, he put out his own statement saying that he was entering uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment. Uh, again, that doesn't tell us very much either. Hmm. All right. Well, sticking with sports. Now, this one isn't a local story, Monica, but I, I don't think that we can let a whole panel of journalists be here this week and avoid the news that came out about Sports Illustrated and AI. What is happening? Well, apparently, um, there was an outfit called The Futurist that has uncovered that Sports Illustrated's website had reviews written on it um, that were by people who apparently don't exist. Um, it was a Sports company. Sports Illustrated did yeah, this. Yeah, you know, a, a vaunted a publication right. for a long time. And, um, and Sports Illustrated said that, 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 that they weren't really written by AI. Uh, some of the informants to the magazine and to the, to the investigators say that they were. Um, Sports Illustrated said that this company called Advon Commerce, uh, which supplied the copy, um, used uh, used uh, had their writers use pen names, an action we don't condone. So they took them down, but they're they're not saying that what's being alleged is is true. But they have taken them down, and they have said that that the company that that supplied this was not up to their standards. Yeah, they deleted the web articles. I mean, as a journalist, Michael, <laughs> does yeah. this, how do you wrap your mind around this? How concerning is it to hear this? Um, Articles being written by AI. Like reviews. Why would you have right, reviews right, right. of all things? Right. I mean, I guess as like an early career journalist, it's a little concerning perhaps, but at the same time too, like maybe they should have, uh, I guess I'm glad some journalists, some skeptical minds are looking at them and seeing right through it. Yeah, and it's not the first time that we've seen this. And I have to say that I, I secretly love it when I find out someone's, you know, had an AI story that that went out that had all sorts of errors in it. It's like, oh, I, I secretly right. love it. Yeah, I will never exactly. be replaced. <laughs> um, but I, I, mean, I guess you can They'll see. They'll still value me. Right. <laughs> Human. I mean, you can see if, like, someone's aggregating sports scores or something like that or just, you know, crunching data with AI. But, like, reviewing products, you need a real person to try that sock on and say it yeah. doesn't feel good. That's sounds insane to me. Uh, what do you think, Dave? I mean, we, it's already tough trying to get the, the public to remain confident 
in the media these days? Well, I don't think the mo- the, the media is monolithic. I, I think, you know, in, in this case, an institution made a terrible mistake in judgment. I mean, I, I just look back on it and think, you know, as a kid, you know, I mowed yards and I, I had a paper route and I saved my money to buy a subscription to Sports Illustrated, you know, yeah. back in the 1970s. And it was like, you know, great photography, great sports writing. It was, you know, if you're an athlete, you wanted to be in the cover of that magazine. And to, to have this happen now, it just, it's such a horrible fall for what, what was really a great institution. And, you know, it, to your point, um, Sasha, it, it comes not long after we had this acknowledgement from a sideline reporter uh, that, that she simply made up stuff on the side, you know, uh, on the sideline when, mm. when that's right, you know, yes. this, this is this is right on the heels of that. And I think, you know, sports journalism, uh, a lot of sports journalists were outraged. They should be because the, as, as a rule, sports We've journalists so are hard. They're hard workers. They, these guys are on the road. Constantly. Guys and women are on the road constantly mm-hmm. uh, following these teams and, and, and doing their best with it. And, uh, you know, these guys, there, there will be a reckoning for these, these organizations that condone this. Right. As a whole, though, you know. I didn't do it. Monica didn't do it. Michael didn't do it. We're, I certainly just, didn't do know, it. Nobody, wasn't me. Wasn't I'm a me. real person so far. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's bring it back to Chicago. It is December 1st, right? And for some folks, that means, oh, wow, it's the most wonderful time of the year again. But it's also the time that overnight winter parking bans go into effect. So if you don't want to wake up one morning and find out that your car has been towed and that it's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars to get it back, you better start paying attention to those red, white, and blue signs with the snowflake. And I should say that snowflake is very deceptive because everyone's like, oh, it means there need to be two inches of snow or even any snow. No, on 107 miles, it is toe zone whether there's snow or not. Another 500 miles yeah. kick in when there's snow. And I just think the city keeps running those those snow signs every time they put this out. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, okay, I just don't have to worry well, if there's this, snow. this passion makes me wonder, Monica, yeah. if you've been ticketed or Maybe, towed. Maybe, perhaps. <laughs> because of Three the winter o'clock in the morning. <laughs> You're not Three making eye o'clock. contact with us. It so <laughs> oh. tells me something there. Yeah, I've had to get my car from a, you know, from being towed at like 2 a.m. Yeah. Not fun. Yeah. Not ever fun. So what about you, Michael? Don't associate this with snow. Uh, definitely not. I'm I'm from the East Coast originally. I never had to worry about this type of thing. Um, <laughs> That's It true. was interesting to read about it in the paper, and then I checked the map and saw my car was not on one of those streets, and I went back to sleep. All <laughs> right, yeah, Dave. Well, you know, it Many reminds me. You know, we started the show with Alderman Burke. I mean, that that you know, one of my colleagues, Dan Melopoulos, wrote this great story about how they they had, the, the Burks had this thing going where they were getting their their streets plowed before everyone else in Chicago mm. when it snowed. You know, so I don't know. It's that time of season. All right, folks, let's turn to some good news. Uh, the anti-violence nonprofit Chicago Cred, which includes people like former Education Secretary Arnie Duncan, they're celebrating this week because they were just awarded a $21 million grant from the Sue Ling Jin Foundation to fight gun violence. So a big congratulations nice. to them. It's huge. Uh, and let's look ahead to the weekend, Monica. A new Asian market and food courts opening up? Yeah, they're having a grand opening around uh, Milwaukee and Chicago. Uh, You know, it's not an area you associate with Asian food. So River West. Yeah, River West. And it's a place called Gangnam Market. And they took over the old urban market. And it's it's, it's kind of like, you know, like a, a gourmet supermarket with a lot of Asian touches. But then this enormous food court with six different stalls. You got sushi. You got turkey ramen. You've got um, uh, Korean tacos. You've got like all of these 
fun mm. Hong Kong mm. specialties mm. and a full bar and a bubble tea area. Mm. And it's like, it's yeah. you feel like you're in Blade Runner. I mean, it's so interestingly designed. And they're giving away a whole bunch of free stuff over the weekend for their uh, grand opening. Did you mention Juk Singh in, in West Town? Because, yeah, because there, there are quite a few new yeah. Chicago restaurants that seem to be channeling Asian yeah. street food markets. And I should say, you know, for any of my relatives who are upset about the use of juxing that they always called me, it's empty bamboo. It's a Chinese person who's not really in touch with their culture. I think they use it in a very um, affectionate way here because I've had some friends saying, oh, how could they oh, call Oh, is that the translation? Yeah, mm. yeah. I, I always sit at the juxing table at all the funerals and weddings because I'm oh, the no. Asian who's half- only, only half. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for for that explanation yeah. for the for the rest of us. Uh, now, for anyone who is flying over the holidays, some new restaurants have landed at Midway Airport. Update us on that. Well, um, they got a decent little central market. I mean, you know, not a ton of new restaurants. Oh, okay. Um, but they, but it, it, they're perking it up. You know, Midway always gets these terrible ratings. Uh, we're always <laughs> running new carrots. Yeah, new carrots. There you go. Connie's Pizza. Yeah, Con- Connie's. Uh-huh. The, I don't know who they're. I don't know who they're connected to, but Connie's is at every single. Connie's is everywhere. Yeah, um, um, but I noticed there's this Beecher's handmade cheese. I think it's out of Seattle, and that looks like it's got some nice pastas, but also the usual salad and sandwich to bring on the plane with you. Um, but you know, hey, uh, I'll, I'll take a perked up Midway anytime. <laughs> Was the last time you flew out of Midway, Michael? Um, Has it been a minute? I went to uh, Denver several months ago, but yeah. as I mentioned before, I fly back to see family on the East Coast pretty regularly. Yeah. I always fly out of O'Hare, but I guess maybe I will think about it a little bit longer for Midway. Check out that time. Connie's Pizza. Check out Connie's yeah. Pizza and White Sox Bar and, and Grill. Can I right. interest you in that? There we go. <laughs> yeah, Mayor Johnson's calling it uh, the most, quote, comprehensive investment in Midway Airport in more than 20 years. Uh, it's in the it's the final major phase of this four hundred million dollar modernization program. Uh, so we've got a few minutes left, folks, and of course there are always I think a couple of stories that we might not have gotten to in the sixty minutes that we've got here. So I'm wondering if any stories this week maybe you think didn't get as much coverage as you thought they should. What comes to mind well, for you, Monica? I really think it's got to be the twentieth anniversary of Maria Pappas's. Christmas trees from around the world. <laughs> 87 trees decorated by different cultural groups in the treasurer's office. Wow. 87 trees. Tonight, she's having a party, and there just might be that special Maria Pappas calendar. <laughs> yeah, that calendar is something else. <laughs> Last year was my first, and I was like, uh, wow, yeah. I didn't know that this gem existed. Yes. That's funny. <laughs> what about you, Dave? What do you think uh, we didn't cover today? Well, you know, my, my colleague Maria Wolfel had a great little story here out of City Hall about how the, the uh, sergeant-at-arms and, and the city council is changing the way. If you're if you're a member of the public and want to go watch your city council in action, mm-hmm. well, more than likely you're going to have to sit behind a wall of glass up in the balcony and be farther away from your public officials than ever before. And this comes after, uh, you know, a number of meetings were disrupted by protesters. And, and this is the answer to that. And, you know, and it's just, it's a, it's a, a difficult thing to watch in a way, because like you, you know, you, you like the idea of having, you, you know, people getting into that building, they're undergoing a security check. So they should be safe to be in that building. Right. So, so, you know, this is our democracy. As we, as we talked about earlier in the show, we should have access to our public officials and any effort to try to screen people away from that, I think is, is, uh, it's not a good look. Yeah. Michael, anything on your radar? Um, I'm thinking about, um, well, definitely that environmental assessment, if that's going to come out. <laughs> Same. 
and um, a little bit more about the changes to uh, the the new shelter policies around time limits. And uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things there, right, is that they are supposed to get um, housing assistance to the remaining folks in shelters. However, um, the organizations offering that rental assistance are only in 14 out of 26 shelters. Oh. So how soon that's going to happen uh, is going to make a big difference in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you're keeping an eye on that as well, too. Monica, anything else on your radar over at Axios? Well, I'm doing this great story for Monday about Ed Burke's fancy swag. <laughs> he gave out some nice Dave, are you swag. on that one, too? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got pictures. We got stories. We've got amazing swag. Some, like, really cool salt and pepper shakers, some pins with his picture. And then Neil Steinberg, your colleague, um, is sharing a picture of the very, the most special thing that Ed Burke has ever given anyone. I can't wait. Oh, that's hilarious. Monday. We'll leave it there. That's it for the weekly news recap. My thanks to WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney, Monica Ang of Axios, and Michael Loria of the Chicago Sun-Times. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Reset. It was produced by Andrea Guffman and edited by Dan Tucker and Brenda Ruiz. Are you signed up for the Reset newsletter? Well, it's delivered to your mailbox each weekday at 10 a.m. You can sign up by visiting wbez.org slash reset news. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend and we'll meet again soon. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.